Well, good morning. I hope you are having a great summer so far. Uh, this is actually our final uh, talk in the series on Friendship Matters. We've been building over the past few weeks and uh, today is our last one in the series. We have Joe O'Neill, who's going to again be looking at specific example of friendship in the Bible, uh, looking at Job and his friends. Um, so over to you, Joe. Well, good morning. We're going to be looking uh, this morning at a friendship or a group of friendships from the book of Job in the Old Testament. Um, so if you have a Bible, do turn uh, to Job now. It's, uh, it's near the middle, just before the Psalms. Um, the book of Job is part of what's known as the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, together uh, with the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, um, and some sections of other books as well, um, including some books from the New Testament. Uh, if you've never read through Job, I'd really recommend it. It's not the easiest read in places, uh, and it's notoriously difficult uh, for translators to translate it into English from the Hebrew. Um, but it's widely acclaimed as a great literary treasure. Old Testament scholar Francis Anderson uh, described it as one of the supreme offerings of the human mind to the living God, and one of the best gifts of God to men. The main themes of the book are the question of God's justice uh, in the light of suffering. Uh, has anyone ever asked you how you can believe in a good God uh, when there is so much suffering in the world? Um, and also about the development of Job's uh, character as he endures intense suffering. So we're going to be uh, looking today at the role of friendship in suffering. Um, as we explore Job uh, and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. Um, so we're going to be looking at uh, what they do well, uh, what they do badly, and what they could never do. Um, so to begin with, the story so far. We're first introduced to the man Job uh, and told that he was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. We're told of his large family um, and great wealth and possessions so that he was the greatest man among the people of the East. We, the readers, um, are then transported into the heavenly realms where we see a challenge laid down between God and Satan. And God draws Satan's attention to Job in chapter 1, verse 8, by saying, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And so Satan is granted permission and begins to put Job um, to proof to test his faithfulness. So we read that one day, uh, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. 
And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. So all at once, Job's whole world has imploded with evil and disaster, loss and grief. But incredibly, he maintains his integrity and his faithfulness before God. So Satan then afflicts Job himself with painful sores or boils from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. So Job takes a piece of broken pottery and scrapes himself with it, sitting among ashes. This is about as abrupt a turnaround as could be imagined. Job has gone from being the greatest man among the people of the East to being utterly broken, bankrupted, burgled, bereaved, and covered in boils. So enter Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And we're going to begin positively with what they do well. What they do well is to offer Job silent support. Silent support. Chapter 2, verse 11 and following says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So, so this is good. This is a mark of true friendship. Uh, the Hebrew word here for friends is reach. Uh, which describes personal friends to whom you feel close and share confidences. The three friends meet together by arrangement, um, so presumably their wives made it happen, um, and they go to sympathize with Job, share in his grief, and comfort him in an attempt to ease his deep pain. They don't try to fix it. They don't try to give an explanation or rationale. They don't tell Job it's going to be okay or try to pretend it's not happening. They just sit on the ground with him for a week and offer silent support. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I remember once um, at the church I was part of as a teenager, so a while ago now, um, a man stood up and shared in a pre-service meeting uh, that he and his wife had received the tragic news that due to complications in his granddaughter's pregnancy, she would inevitably miscarry and that well-meaning people around them had tried to offer solace with explanation and guidance, telling them that God loved them, telling them it was okay and it was going to be okay, and that none of it helped. None of it gave them the strength to cope with the grief. Until he read the well-known words of Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. And that, he said with great courage through tears, that is the final word. Just be still. And that's what Job's three friends do here. They are still and they sit with him and offer silent support. And at this point, in terms of an example of true friendship, 
is going pretty well, given the circumstances. But then in chapter 3, Job reaches breaking point. Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it, may no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it, may blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren, may no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark, may it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn, for it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. And this vivid, poetic language continues through the rest of the chapter, all making it very clear that Job has had enough. His suffering is so intense, he literally wishes he'd never been born. And the next 36 chapters contain a dialogue between Job and his friends as Job pleads his case and they try to answer him. And here we have to look less positively um, at what they do badly because in all their responses, they simply offer Job worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. So let's talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul here has the, the whole Old Testament, certainly in view, um, and by extension it applies to the New Testament as well. All scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos in the Greek, inspired by God and distinct from all other literature and writings. So the book of Job is God-breathed, inspired by God for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But before we look at some of the counsel that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar give, you need to know it's bad counsel. It's worldly wisdom. One of the reasons Job is difficult to read um, is if you encounter it during uh, maybe a Bible reading plan or something like that, you might be reading only a chapter or so at a time. Um, and out of the context of the larger book, you'll be encountering some pretty challenging things. The counsel of Job's three friends centers around the idea that Job is suffering, so there must be some massive hidden sin in his life somewhere. Come on, Job, what is it? Spill the beans and maybe God will make this go away. If you spend two, three, four weeks perhaps chipping away at Job, it's going to be confusing because the worldly wisdom of Job's friends in answer to Job's complaints goes on for 36 chapters. The innocent prosper, says Eliphaz. You should repent, says Bildad. This is nothing, says Zophar. You deserve worse, you wretched sinner, for 36 chapters. That's a lot of thinking as the reader. Really? That doesn't seem right. And what we mustn't do at that point is pull these sayings out of context and say, well, it's what the Bible says, therefore that's what I will say to my suffering friend. Don't do that. Please, don't do that. 
Yes, the book of Job is 100% God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, and training in righteousness. We should read it, study it, learn from it, and sit under its teaching. But we need to do just that. Read it, all of it. Study it thoroughly and learn from it as a whole. For other examples of this, we could look all over. Um, But let's just have a quick look at one, um, the opening of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is also part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Well, this is the spirit-inspired word of the Lord, so let's just give up and go home, shall we? Forget mission, evangelism, worship, growing in holiness, serving the poor. Since it's all meaningless, what's the point? Now, obviously, I don't think that, but the warning stands. We need absolutely to sit under the authority of Scripture. I hope I've been clear on that. Scripture is the means through which God exercises his lordship over the church and individual believers. But we have to derive and understand the meaning from the larger context. So whether the larger context is the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes and the life of King Solomon, or in the case of Job and his friends, the larger context of the whole book of Job. So where am I going with this? How do we know Job's friends aren't giving him godly wisdom? Well, when we get to chapter 38, God speaks for himself with some of the most chilling words in all the Bible. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And God goes on to interrogate Job about his faulty worldview and the false counsel of his friends. He points to paradox within creation that is part of God's created order and God's governance of the world, and shows Job the limits of humanity in subduing evil. And all of this is pointing Job towards humility before God and faith that he alone is competent to rule over creation and dispense justice. So we've seen what Job's friends did well, their silent support, and what they, that what they did badly, their worldly wisdom. So now we're going to look at what they could never do, why they were ill-equipped to truly provide the comfort Job was looking for. Because Job is really looking for the support of a God-man mediator. A God-man mediator. Job says back in chapter 9, verse 32, He, speaking of God, is not a mere mortal like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me, so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands, I cannot. You see, Job's complaint is that God is utterly transcendent, glorious in holiness, dwelling in unapproachable light, while Job is suffering as a mere man 
covered in boils, sitting in ashes. So Job is crying out for a mediator, one who can truly relate to God in his divinity and to us in our humanity. One who is truly God and truly man. One who can intercede and represent and mediate. And of course, we know there is such a one. Paul's first letter to Timothy in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 5, says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So there is one God, not multiple gods, not different gods for different things or different people groups. And between this one true God and all of humanity, there is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, the one who stands in the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity, the one who in the fullness of his perfect divinity embraced the weakness of humanity, the one who suffered on our behalf, also with three friends alongside him, just like Job, and also completely let down. We read in Mark chapter 14 from verse 32. They, that's Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John, his three close friends, along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. And as French philosopher and theologian Blaise Pascal remarked, Jesus seeks some comfort, at least, in his three dearest friends. And they are asleep. He prays them to bear with him for a little. And they leave him with entire indifference, have so little compassion that it could not prevent their sleeping even for a moment. And Jesus was left alone to the wrath of God. So Jesus, the perfect sinless God-man, died on the cross in our place for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and made peace with God on our behalf. He is the mediator, the one mediator. There is no one else to go to between you and God, no one else to pray to, no one else to intercede on your behalf. He is the person and the place where we meet God. No longer is God's presence limited to a temple building, Jesus has made God's presence globally accessible by faith in him. He is our high priest, the one who represents us and brings us into relationship with God. Hebrews 4 verses uh, 13 and following says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into the heaven, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So what does this mean for friendships? Because friendship matters in suffering. Well, firstly, think of the silent support. Let's mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. Don't try to problem solve or offer platitudes or worldly wisdom, but let's get alongside our friends when they suffer and suffer with them. And secondly, and more importantly, the best thing we can ever, ever do for people is to point them to Jesus. Point them to the one who made peace between God and humanity. The one who endured the greatest suffering and gave himself as a ransom for all people. The great high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses, yet has made a way for us to approach God's throne of grace, to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Point them to Christ, the mediator. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word in all its fullness and diversity. And thank you for the godly wisdom that we can learn from the book of Job. We ask that you would help us to be true friends to those who suffer and to find true friendship ourselves when we are suffering. But we thank you for Jesus, the mediator, the one who is the person and the place where we can find the presence of God by faith. And in his name we pray. Amen.